Welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right here in North Texas. So settle up, y'all, and enjoy the ride. Today I'm talking with Double Oak resident and mother of eight, Heather Olson. Heather is a Rhode Island expat who, despite living in Texas for the last 24 years, still calls Rhode Island home. At the risk of ignoring the good advice of American author John Gunther, who, full disclosure demands, I remind you, was not himself a Texan, he said, if a man's from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, why embarrass him by asking? But Heather, seriously, you've got some splaining to do. After birthing eight Texans and marrying a man who claims Texas, and after 24 years of living here, you don't consider Texas your home? I still call Rhode Island home. My um, heritage is Wampanoag and Narragansett tribes from Rhode Island and Massachusetts. I always say I'm going home. Well, if you don't claim us, I hope you don't mind if we happily claim you. We're glad you're here, Heather. I asked you on today to talk about a big subject. Saving the world, which is kind of a hyperbolic way of saying, what can we do as individuals to be a force for good in the world? You are someone who has jumped in the fray and are fighting battles on multiple fronts for causes you feel passionate about. I've been a lurker on your social media platforms for some time watching you grapple with the big question and witnessing your service journey, so to speak. Before we get into specifics about the organizations you support, can you speak a little bit about how your heart was prepared for service? I grew up in a fairly difficult situation myself, difficult childhood, and I've always felt drawn to the underdog, always. Now, part of that comes from having come from that and being able to make something and and have people help me so much along the way that I was able to raise a family and be where I am now in the circumstances I am now. And that feeling of, because I've been given much, I feel it every moment of my life because I remember being on the other side very clearly and feeling like there was no hope, there was no way out, there was no um, help to be had. And so being able to recognize that in others is just something that has, um, it's been a call for me for my entire adult life. Now, I have felt very strongly that, that Heavenly Father is aware of every circumstance. The way that he has mapped out my experiences in Africa are mind-boggling to me. I'm amazed that this girl from Rhode Island, smallest state, and I'm from a small town in the small state, has had the privilege to go and meet some of his children in Africa and to see his love for them and to feel that so strongly and to just be aware of a bigger picture. And um, so that's what drives my service there. But my experiences as a child, traumatic experiences as a child are what laid the foundation for all of this. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's a gift that it put it, things in me that I wouldn't have had otherwise. It put a heart in me that I wouldn't have had otherwise, I think. So it's been a long time to recognize the gift in it, but that's where, yeah. 
What's interesting to me is how each of us has a part to play in God's plan. And sometimes it's only from the high hill of experience that we have enough wisdom to look back and recognize his hand in our lives, to see it, really see it and say, oh, now I get it. You haven't always been so active in dedicated service, service on a grand scale, have you, Heather, until maybe the last four or five years. Would you say that's right? Yeah. I, well, that was when I um, started traveling more with it. But about five years ago, I was kind of struggling with some things. And this was kind of an answer for me. It kind of was a an outlet and something that I felt that I wanted to do. I've been drawn to Africa since I was a kid. I mean, I remember like the drought in Ethiopia, like when I was a young teenager and just being devastated by it and wanting so much to do something and having no power to do anything as a teenager. And so I've always been drawn to it. But about five years ago, I got involved with Days for Girls. Let's talk about Days for Girls, um, which is one of the many charities that you support. Mm -hmm. So Days for Girls International was started by a woman named Celeste Morgan, um, who's a member of the church, and she was working, um, actually, she was working to help orphanages in Africa to have sustainable fuel to cook with. She was trying to figure out ways to burn sawdust, to do all these things, and she said she went to bed one night with that on her mind and woke up in the middle of the night with the question of what are these girls doing for their menstrual cycle? She said, I've never had that thought before in my life. It had never even like entered her mind. And she, the next day, started looking into it, talked to the people in the orphanages she was working with, and found out that these girls were like sitting on a piece of cardboard for five days. And so she said, um, I think we can do better. And f her first effort was to, it was a very Americanized effort. She went to Kotex and, you know, and and asked for supplies. And of course, we ship all that over there and realized that can't be the answer. It's not sustainable. They don't have trash. They don't have waste management coming to pick up their trash. And so that wasn't going to work. And so they went to work back to the drawing board to create a sustainable feminine hygiene kit, reusable, rewashable. And um, they, it's been through, I believe, 27 revisions as we've gotten words back, you know, um, things back from people using them there. And what we have now is really a remarkable kit that can last for about three years for a girl and help her to stay in school so she doesn't have to miss school um, when she's on her monthly cycle. Clearly, Days for Girls has found an advocate and a spokesperson in you. But I'm curious, how did you personally, um, what is your personal story about how you became involved with Days for Girls? At about five years ago, Pam Moore with Days for Girls, she approached me to be on the board because she had come back from a mission trip to Uganda and had seen some things go on with Days for Girls there and wanted to become involved here, but found out there wasn't a chapter here. And so she started the chapter and knew that I was service oriented and that I had a love for Africa. We had actually had her to our home when they got back to talk about her mission and talk about her time in Uganda. Um, and so she knew I had a heart for it and asked me to be on the board. And so I'd been kind of building that chapter for a few years before we were actually able to go over to South Sudan 
um, to deliver Days for Girls um, kits. So you personally deliver the kits that your chapter makes. So yes, we went to South Sudan and we, I went with, I was representing Days for Girls, but we also traveled with an organization called GEMS, which is Goats Education, Medicine and uh, Sustainability. And so we went with a few other members of the church from this area and a woman uh, in New York, a Jewish woman from New York who had started GEMS. And we went and delivered 2,000 feminine hygiene kits for Days for Girls in South Sudan. We taught hygiene classes in several of the schools there, and we were able to deliver the kits there. So what kind of feedback did you get from the girls? When I first went, I was a little skeptical. I was not sure that teenage girls would take care of them, wash them. The teenagers I know here, it's a throwaway society kind of a little bit here. And I wasn't sure if they would be as excited about this as, as it seemed from the Days for Girls material. I wasn't sure. And, and so I went over there a little skeptical. And the first time I walked into a room, I had probably 150 girls, I would say, in this room. And I had a translator in Dinka, um, the language there. And when I, all I said was, I've brought something for you to be able to help you manage your monthly cycle so that you can stay in school. And they stood up and they cheered and it was powerful to have that happen. And I thought, oh, it humbled me so much to be put in my place that yes, this was absolutely something that was needed. And the thing about it there. It's not just about being able to stay in school. When you leave school, it's a cultural symbol that you are ready to be a child bride. They know you've started your cycle. It's kind of like a, a pattern. So you start your cycle. You can't keep up in school because you're missing a week every month. And then eventually you kind of give up at 14, 15, and you drop out, and then you're eligible to be married. And so this buys them time. It buys them time in school. It's school is the safest place for them to be. If they're not in school, they're usually out selling things on the street. They're helping, you know, get water from miles and miles away. Those, and those are dangerous things for young girls. And so this is a safety issue as well, that it just protects them to keep them in school. Now, Days for Girls is just one of the many organizations that you support. You also support Partners in Health, is for Africa, and the stew pot right here in North Texas. Tell us a little bit about your experience with these organizations. Let's start with Partners in Health. They actually are one of my all-time favorite charities because they are so specifically targeted to the poorest of the poor. They are bringing healthcare solutions to the most impoverished places in the world. They work with the three um, killers of people in poverty, which are malaria, AIDS, and tuberculosis. Those three kill more people than any terrorists ever will. Any, I mean, these are three of the, and, and the solutions are inexpensive, relatively. Um, malaria is something that we see in Africa so often. 
and it costs $2 for a mosquito net for a child. And the malarone, like even anti-malarial uh, anti medication is very, very inexpensive. And, but there it's, it's impossible for them. And so trying to stop those, those deaths of children from malaria is one of their goals. And also working with people with AIDS, um, they work a lot in Haiti. They, that was where it started was in Haiti. And they've now actually built a hospital there. Um, and they were there after the earthquake right there on the ground immediately and, and serving people to, to provide healthcare. So they work a lot. They work in the healthcare part of poverty. They work with, um, just really trying to get, um, there, there's a lot of people that feel as though healthcare in those countries isn't a good investment. People are always a good investment, always a good investment. That's actually why I'm back in school, getting my degree in public health. I want to finish eventually a doctorate in global health and probably work for, for them at some point. I got to say that the uh, fascinating part of this conversation is understanding how your life is unfolding within the context of your service to others. Let's switch gears a little and talk about something closer to home. Tell us about the stew pot in Dallas. So um, the stew pot is local. And I, my husband and I, years ago, and it's been several years since we've done this, but um, when we had eight children at home, we felt we really wanted to give them the experience of working with the homeless. And so we would, it started out just doing it after Thanksgiving um, we would take our leftover turkey and make turkey sandwiches and put together lunches and bring them to Dallas. And we'd hand them out on Hervé Street. There's a large homeless population there. And it's kind of picked up steam to where we're doing it more often and going down there more often. Stores were giving us their leftover baked goods. The one time we went to the store right after Thanksgiving and there was a hole in the bread bag as the going and the checkout girl said, Oh, um, let me get you a new one. And my husband said, well, I'm actually, I'm using this to feed the homeless. I'm making these sandwiches today. So if, if you're just going to throw it away, I'll, I'll take it. And she said, Oh, you're working with the homeless. Hold on a second. Let me get my manager. And we left with 18 fresh turkeys that they couldn't sell because they were fresh and they were going to go bad. They could, but they're not allowed to freeze them. We could put them in our freezer. So we ended up with bringing a lot more families, expanding where we where we served. And it was a great experience. The Stew Pot supports the homeless in Dallas. They have great programs. They have um, things for children. They, they do an art auction where kids create artwork, and then that's auctioned off to help with the supplies at the Stew Pot. So it's, it's a great organization here locally to help with the homeless. With this organization and also, um, and maybe especially, with taking things to Sudan, to someone who is not initiated with doing service like that, um, who has never done it. Those things sound scary and maybe even dangerous. What do you say to that person? I get asked that a lot, actually. And with bringing our children to Dallas, we never felt scared. We never felt, I, I would never go by myself. I always brought my husband with me. I would never bring my children there by myself. But in all honesty, they were some of the kindest, most gracious people you'll ever meet. I've never felt that 
there was a, a malicious nature to someone who's in need or desperate. I was asked once that, did I feel that the people in Africa were, um, they felt entitled to our help. And I, I was a little shocked by the question, but I said, no, they're desperate in some ways for anyone to recognize their situation and come in and help. Now they don't necessarily need our help in giving them things. They may need our help in helping them to help themselves. Um, I think the person who figures out investment in Africa is going to just be amazingly um, wealthy in one, in some ways, because they can build an incredible um, there's there's brilliant minds there, brilliant minds who are stunted by their circumstance. And so anyone who can go there and figure out how to invest in some of these countries is going to do very well for themselves and also help lift people there. It, it's, an, it's an incredible place to be. And I feel that way even about some of the homeless situation. Everybody has a story. You don't know how many steps it took for them to get to where they are. Um, a lot of it's mental illness. A lot of it is just some life choices maybe, but there's no, um, I, I really never met anyone that was, that seemed greedy or mean. They were just very kind and gracious and thankful. So, so the fear comes from the unknown, I think. I think once you take that step in, then you realize that some of that fear comes from movies, things we see on, you know, uh, about the homeless or about Africa or about different things. Now, South Sudan isn't, I, I don't know that I would go there today. I think it is in a dangerous, um, dangerous place right now with their civil war situation, um, with some of the politics that are going on. So I'm not saying to just jump in with your eyes closed. You do need to be aware and mindful of what's going on. But I felt safe there. And I felt very protected by the people of South Sudan. One, they love Texas. George Bush, they called George Bush the midwife who birthed their nation because he had so much to do with their uh, independence. But they do. They love George Bush. So they were very protective of us as Texans, but also as Americans. They know that if anything was to happen to an American there, that their foreign aid would dry up. They know that. So they're very, very protective of, of us while we're there. There's a scripture in Matthew I probably should have memorized it, but it says something about the fact that because of fear, the love in men's hearts will wax cold. That's my biggest fear is that fear does, it. it's like it stifles love. And I think we need to be aware of that and push love to the top because Fear wants to just suppress it. Fear wants to suppress those compassionate feelings we have. Um, I remember during the Syrian refugee crisis, I had a very big change of heart. I was afraid at the beginning. I thought, are we safe? Are we safe allowing people? Are we, you know, there, and it's very complicated. And I know there are a lot of trains of thought about it, but I had a change of heart to think if I was on the run with my family and I thought back to the pioneers, they were on the run with their families and to have somebody to be supportive in that and uh, and give a family a place and allow them to restart their life they didn't ask to be 
pushed out of where they came from. They didn't ask to be um, taken from their careers. I've met people who were in a refugee camp for seven years. You're not allowed to work. You really have no life. It is a holding pattern for seven to 10 years. Some people end up in refugee camps. And then to come somewhere is just, it's just a start. They have nothing. They have to rebuild fresh. And anything that we can do to help a family in that process, I think, will help us to find that love again. If we can overcome that fear, we, and again, I think that fear comes from the media. I think it comes from movies and what's portrayed on TV. There are some dangerous people who want to hurt our country, but they're not usually families who are in refugee camps for seven years and then come here. And and so that's where I think the, the line needs to be drawn. I think we need to just be careful not to lump it all in one big danger. And we need to be able to accept people as individuals and to, um, again, just try to allow that love to override the fear. It is a scary time. And there are a lot of things going on that are played big in the media. And so people think it's happening every day, everywhere. It is one of the safest times ever to be alive. We have our access to medicine, we have vaccines, we have all these things that protect us. But at the same time, people are afraid to to reach out a hand to someone because they're afraid of what that person might do. And I think most people are good. That's just... And people might think I'm naive to think that, but the more people I meet, the more I realize it's probably, I think it's true. What do you tell somebody who's been listening today and has kind of been thinking in their heart, you know, I want to do more. I want to reach out. I want to be of service to my fellow man. And, um, but I aren't quite sure how to do that. What advice would you give them? So think about what you are comfortable with with. It could be you like children. Go volunteer to read uh, the first grade at the school. It could be that you are drawn to a Spanish culture or, um, you know, maybe you have a, a language skill. There are, look for that. Look for things where your skill set matches what what is needed. And um, Just Serve is a great asset, for, or a great um, resource for that where they can match up what you have to offer. Gardening skills, go help at a nursing home. To, there, there, there are places where they need certain skill sets and there's opportunities in so many ways to, to help. Now, if you want to do something for travel, if you want to go to, to a place where you think that you might be able to help. There are opportunities for that in so many organizations. Humanitarian experiences, and especially for youth, now has a humanitarian experience that um, my 19-year-old went when she was in high school and went and built a women's shelter in Bolivia. My daughter went last year and built a children's um, clinic in Guatemala. So there are opportunities, and, and they both raised their own money to go. And so there are opportunities for youth. There's opportunities for adults to get involved at that level if you, if you want to. 
But I'd say start small, just, you know, with the time that you have, if it's an hour a week, great. See what you can do with that hour. See if you can become a volunteer at the hospital. See if you can give blood. Think there's there's something for everyone's comfort level. Mm-hmm. Some people might not be comfortable working with people. Giving blood is a great opportunity. Stocking at the CCA pantry is a great opportunity. There's ways for everyone to give and help. And you just need to find what works best for you, what works best for your schedule, for your family. This was a this was a stretch for me. I'm I'm still surprised that I did it at the time I did it. I still had a little girl when I went to South Sudan, but I've seen my children grow up with a heart for people um, in lesser circumstances. And that's been a blessing for me to see my, especially my young children have compassion and empathy and um, want to do something even from their young uh, ability to, to, to do anything. They want to do what they can. And I think everybody can take that. Everybody can just do what they can. We've been talking to Heather Olson of the Louisville Stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints about service, which is really the fulfillment of the second great commandment, to love thy neighbor as thyself. I've been humbled and inspired by her service journey, and I hope you have too. That's all for tonight, folks. Time to bank the fire and call in the dogs. Till next time, good night, everybody.